I just want to begin by uh, thanking Suri um, for inviting me to come speak. Uh, and truthfully, uh, when, when Suri called me over the summer, uh, it, it's really an honor and... Uh, hmm? Sure. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I felt like an honorary member of the Rudolph family for a very long time. And um, now I get to really feel like one. Um, uh, between being uh, Simone Rudolph's younger brother uh, that she never had as a child growing up, uh, to uh, knowing very well uh, the Rocklands, Rudolphs, Hertzbergs, Seamers, Olshans, Sugarmans. Did I miss anybody in the list? I, I, I now. <laughs> Okay, and the Nolers, I'm sorry. We should talk. We should talk afterwards. Uh, yes, Tversky's as well. Um, so it really is very meaningful to me uh, to be able to present this, this, this lecture, and um, it's also an honor to precede uh, Rabbi Schachter, who I know is going to be doing part two of the lecture. Um, we'll get to the topic in a minute, because Adam help me uh, in choosing the topic as well. I also want to express my, my appreciation to Rabbi Silber and to the Drisha Institute. As Suri mentioned, I, I started off as an educator um, working specifically in the field of uh, women's Jewish education and uh, following just a little bit of the trailblazing footsteps of, of Rabbi Silber and the Drisha Institute. And um, it really is a, an honor to, to give this lecture specifically, specifically here. I spent a lot of time um, thinking about women's education and looking up to Rabbi Silber and to those initial co cohorts of the Drisha Scholar Circles, many of whom were the wives of my Chavrutan and YU, you know, Leora Bednarsh and Sally Mayer and Noah Jesselson and Devorah Zlachauer. And uh, those were the people who inspired me to, to become an educator and to spend a good deal of my time on behalf of, of uh, women's education. And that work continues now in SAR in, in a slightly different form. Um, the topic that we're going to explore tonight, and it really is a huge, vast topic, and there are many, many different fascinating elements to it, uh, is Kol Nidre. Uh, all these vows. And um, the reason why I chose this topic is because Kol Nidre night has always been a night that has a magical quality and that, um, that really, even as a child, struck me as something special, something that was unique. Everybody in white, the melodies, uh, just the, the atmosphere, the music, Everything about Kol Nidre Night uh, had an element of, of awe and, and excitement uh, and the like. And part of that, of course, was uh, Balei Tfila who were involved. Um, now I'm fortunate enough in my shul to have President Richard Joel as our Baal Tfila for Yamim Noraim. And Kol Nidre is right in his sweet spot. Uh, he's, he really... Um, adds a dimension to it, and 
in thinking about uh, a shear and a lecture that could pay tribute to the memory of Stanley Rudolph, uh, Adam advised me to go in the direction of something that would be meaningful uh, to, to those who appreciated Bali Tfila and Nusach. And uh, so I'm, I'm pleased to present some of my thoughts and research on, uh, on Kol Nidre uh, here with you this evening. So the, the, the atmosphere and the environment and the music are all special, but the content of Kol Nidre itself is downright confusing and contradictory. And what I want to try to do with you this evening is to study the content itself of Kol Nidre and to figure out a little bit of the history of how it came to be how it endured, and Kol Nidre is a survivor uh, in the Jewish liturgy. There were a lot of attempts to do away with it, and perhaps along the way gain a deeper insight, not just into Kol Nidre, but into Yom Kippur and to Tshuva as a theme in general. So if you take a look at your source sheets, we'll come back. I, I put a bonus source on the front cover, which we'll hopefully have a few moments at the end to conclude with. Um, but if you take a look at your source sheets, we're going to begin with the text of Kol Nidre itself. I'm not going to sing it. I'm tempted to, but uh, <laughs> I'm, that's also part of my fascination with Kol Nidre is that I, I don't have my dad's deep voice, I know, but I have a deep voice and I've kind of always thought that I could pull off Kol Nidre, but the, the little bit of tone deaf uh, quality has always precluded me from even trying that in Richard Joel's hands, which would, you know, take me down. Um, so let's take a look at the, at the text itself, and um, we'll see. I, I gave you the standard Ashkenazic text, as we say it now, or as most people say it, um, certainly in the Ashkenazi community. And we begin by enumerating all the different forms of verbal utterances that can obligate us. All of these vows, obligations, oaths, etc. Kulon Yehon Sharan, Shvikin, Shvitin, Betelin, Mivutalin, La Sharirin, Vela Kayamin, Nidrana, La Nidre, the Esarana, La Esare, Ushuatana, La Shivuot. As we go through the, through the text, the question, the essential question, is obvious. And that is, of course, which vows are we talking about? Are we annulling vows of the past? Are we cutting our losses from the previous year's vows? Or are we somehow conditioning our vows for the future? The text itself seems to speak of the about the vows which we have vowed, sworn, devoted, or bound ourselves to. But then we shift miyom kippurim zeh ad yom kippurim haba from this Day of Atonement until the next Day of Atonement. We repent of them all. They shall be deemed absolved, forgiven, annulled, and void. So what we're going to try to figure out 
tonight is how this text came to be, how it endured despite its incoherence, and hopefully its messages to us through even that incoherence, what it says to us about our past, our future, as we enter uh, the day of Yom Kippur. In order to do that, we need to take a step back and examine Nidarim and Hatarat Nidarim, do a brief historical overview. This is not comprehensive. Nidarim um, themselves are a huge topic on their own. Hatarat Nidarim is a huge topic on its own. And specifically, the ceremony or the, 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 the procedure prior to Rosh Hashanah, which many have the custom on Arab Rosh Hashanah to sit and perform Hatarat Nidarim. Some people do it at Mincha and Arab Yom Kippur. And then ultimately we'll, we'll get to Kol Nidre. But I want to sketch a brief biblical and rabbinic history of Nidarim and Hatarat Nidarim in the hopes of, of giving us some background and context as to where Kol Nidre came from and why this became the way in which we start Yom Kippur. And remember, Kol Nidre is before Yom Kippur starts. It's specifically supposed to be called and begun several moments before sunset. There's a technical legal rationale for that, and we'll get to that as well. It's the tone setter for the entire day. So the, the first place to start is, of course, in the Chumash, and to figure out uh, what Nidharam are about and what and how Hatarat Nidharam work. And the first source on your sheet um, after the text of Kol Nidre uh, gives us the, the basics of, of Nidharam. But I want to point out um, this many academic scholars, many Bible scholars and, and Mepharshim point out the entire parasha, the entire concept of Nidharim themselves is somewhat shrouded in ambiguity. If you look at chapter 30, Paraklamet of Sefer Bamidbar, when we're introduced to Nidharim, it's on the heels of a pasuk, a, a verse which seems to sum up all of the teachings in the Torah prior to moving on to Moshe's speech in Dvarim. The Pasuk which opens Paraklamid, referring to the previous discussion of the Korbanot and the like and everything else which preceded this chapter, describes how Moses tells the children of Israel all that the Lord commanded Moshe. And then we have We don't have a record of God commanding this. We only have a description or a testimony of Moshe that in fact he was commanded by God. We're not going to be detained by that question. I just wanted us to be sensitive to the fact that even the, the concept of vows and oaths themselves is somewhat peculiarly introduced in the Torah. It's not at all clear when this was transmitted to Moshe and why the Torah doesn't tell us about that transmission, and this is something which occupied many of the commentators trying to figure out exactly when this was conveyed and why, how this was conveyed, and also the, the manner in which it's conveyed here to the Rashi Hamatot is unique in the Torah. We'll leave and bracket aside Nidarim for the moment 
and we'll get to the heart of the, the message of those of the Psukim. Ish ki yidor neder lahashem al yishava shvua lasor yisaral nafsho lo yachel dvaro kechol hayotzei mipiv yaseh. When an individual vows a vow unto the Lord or swears an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. This brings us to important point number two. And that is that if you look at the Torah and if you look at Tanakh, there really isn't such a thing as Hatarat Nidarim at all. Okay? The whole thing that we do on Kol Nidre, which is just one manifestation of a huge halachic concept, one which occupies much of Tractate Nidarim, if you look at the biblical evidence of it, it doesn't appear as if there is much. It's, it's not even embryonic. And so we have to try to figure out and speculate a bit as to how it and why the notion of Hatarat Nidarim becomes so central to the world of Nidarim. And we can already begin to think and speculate as to why that evolved and how that evolved. But the Pasuk in Bamidbar really conveys to us someone who says something, and it's fascinating because the drasha for Hatarat Nidarim is derived from Lo Yachel Dvaro, the very Pasuk which says, you cannot break your word, seems to be categorical, then becomes the basis, who lo yachel dvaro? He can't break his word, but others can assist him in annulling his vow. So it's one of these really significant shifts that we see between Torah Shavach Tav and Torah Shavach Peh, from the, the written Torah to kind of the, the rabbinic tradition and rabbinic um, interpretation. And that's significant in terms of the backdrop for Kol Nidre as well, to understand that the very institution of Hatarat Nidarim itself is somewhat challenging and problematic in a biblical sense. Already in Dvarim, when we have kind of Moshe's recapitulation of the laws of Nidarim, we have some uh, qualifying of these laws. When a person vows, the Pasuk in Dvarim says, you cannot lo ta'acher l'shalmo. You can't delay in paying it off because God really wants you to give it right away. And know also as well that if you don't take a vow, that's okay. And we see later on in Kohelet, this begins within the Torah itself. We already see that there's a great deal, deal of ambivalence about the entire concept of Nidar a good thing, a bad thing, and that's picked up on in rabbinic Judaism where we see statements like someone who vows and fulfills their vow is ki'ilu bone bama. It's as if they've built a, a, uh, a, a temple that they shouldn't have built. So already in the psukim themselves we begin to see some of that ambivalence and that's picked up upon much later on. I'm going to leave aside again, bracket off the entire... Um, different perspectives on Nidarim. You have other statements in Chazal which seem to suggest that Nidarim do have positive value. Um, Rabbi Akiva in the Mishnah Avo speaks highly of Nidarim as a safeguard. Um, and you have kind of a, a, a almost a, 
split, almost a schizophrenic view codified in the Shulchan Aruch, where the Shulchan Aruch says, well, really, you shouldn't take vows. But if you want to take a vow for certain instances, well, then it can be a positive thing. But leaving all that aside, let's now turn our attention specifically to Hatarat Nidarim and where they emerge. So again, just to reinforce the point we made earlier, the episode in Tanakh which uh, draws our attention um, in, a, in, in, in the omission sense to the fact that, that Hatarat Nidarim doesn't seem to be a viable option is of course the famous story of Yiftach and his daughter. Because in that scenario, you read the text, and if you have any awareness of Hatarat Nidarim, you start screaming. You know, what's going on here? Why is it that we're not going about, the, the, you know, get three people together and start doing, uh, you know, machalach, machalach, let's move on. What is, what's going on here? And so, it, again, it, it requires a certain kind of shift in our thinking, but the, the overlay of Hatarat Nidarim on top of Tanakh seems to be uh, one which is a, a dramatic shift in how we think about, um, think about Nidarim and the capacity to overturn that which, what, what we've stated. I think the only example, and I hesitate in front of Rabbi Silbert to say it's the only example, but I think the only example in Tanakh where you have someone whose vow is not fulfilled is the case of Shaul with, with Yonatan. Uh, in Perikidal, source number four, we're going to come back to this as well because the more I've thought about it in the last few weeks, the more this story looms large. The, the st- this is kind of before Shaul has started to, um, started to unravel, and, uh, but there may be hints to it in this story as well. Uh, Shaul is battling the Plishtim and he, he makes a vow. Uh, he swears that uh, the men, while they're engaged in battle, are not to partake of uh, any food or drink. You know, they're not supposed to eat anything. Now, that's not a great vow, not that smart a vow to make when you're a soldier. You got to eat. And so Yonatan hasn't heard about it and he sees the Arot Tazvash and he's overcome and he tastes from it and later on in the chapter Shaul is trying to figure out whether he's supposed to attack the Plishtim and God doesn't respond and he finally figures out that there's a reason why this, the God is not responding and it's due to the fact that someone has, someone has broken the vow and who is it? It's his own son. And the parallels here to Yiftach and his daughter uh, are, are fairly glaring. But what's remarkable, and I, I think this is really instructive for, for Kol Nidre, and it will foreshadow um, kind of the, the primary thesis later on, uh, at the end of the, the parak, Shaul decides, you know, what, what can I do? Kimot tamut Yonatan. Yonatan's got to die. There's no, there's no choice. I, I said that if anybody eats, they're in trouble, and that's it. Yonatan ate. And we read in the final pasuk in the bold, Vayomra Ha'amel Shaul, Hayonatanya Muda Shirasai Yeshuagdola Hazopi Israel Khalila Chai Hashem. Imipo misaarat rosho artsa ki imelohima sahai yomazet, vayifdu ha'amet yonatan vilomate. The people rescued and redeemed Jonathan, and he did not die. 
So again, the model of Hatarat Nidarim, of Shelat Chacham, we don't really see evidence of. But what we do seem to find, at least one lone example, and it's the exception that proves the rule, is that there is, and, and the chapter goes on to say that, that Shaul is successful in war, so it does seem to imply that not carrying out his vow, if you read the next Sukim, uh, not carrying out his vow, the verdict seems to be that that's okay. doesn't explicitly say that, but you can intuit that now the communication resumes and the hand of God and Yeshuat Hashem is, is back. So, just kind of surveying the biblical evidence, we see not only that the realm of Nidarim is fraught, uh, but Hatarat Nidarim uh, is glaringly absent uh, from the biblical scene. And the Mishan Chagiga more or less says this. Source number five on your sheet, Heter Nidarim Porchin Ba'avir Ve'ein Lahem Amashi Yismachu. That's a pretty harsh or, or self-aware statement of Chazal here. The power to release vows emerges or floats in the air and really does not have any firm basis. Okay. That's the backdrop. By the time we get to later Midrashim, if you look at source number six, Vayikra Rabbah, now Hatarat Nidarim, Sheilat Chacham, is a institutionally part of the halachic system. It's ubiquitous. It's also a way of of dealing with the ambivalence towards vows. We don't really like vows, so this represents an opportunity to avoid having to fulfill vows in a legalized fashion. So we have the institution of Hatarat Nidarim, which now becomes a part of the system. And it seems like it's preferred in certain senses, in a certain sense, to fulfilling a vow. Maybe better not to vow at all, but once you vow, we have this Remarkable institution of Hatarat Nidarim. So much so that the Medrash in Vayikra Rabbah now has a whole different take on the Yiftach story. That is source number six. Vayihi Kiroto Ota, when he saw her, referring to Yiftach seeing his daughter, Velo Haya Yacho Lahatirat Nidro. Couldn't Yiftach have said, Forget about it. So the whole story, rather than being depicted as a tragedy of, of uttering something which, which he couldn't take back, now becomes a story of arrogance and dueling uh, power uh, play between the Shofet and the Kohen Gadol and by the by this one didn't go to that one this one didn't go to that one this is also a relevant story for, for Yom Kippur um, Yiftach's daughter pays the ultimate price but again the Pshat I would argue I'm trying to argue strongly the Pshat of the Psukim doesn't seem to indicate that there is this possibility even Chazal definitely saw this as a possibility and read the story in light of that.
that's that's the background. Is there are there any questions? We, we've we've done a, an overview of a long period of time in a major institution, so I'm happy to if there are any questions. Yes. Could you say that uh, in the uh, Yonatan episode we have an embryonic form of Al-Ghazal? I I definitely think so, and you're you're. You know, you're you're on. You're, yeah, I, 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 it's my own doing. I put it in the sources because I want to be uh, historically accurate. But I definitely think that the story, the beautiful story of Kol Nidre and the endurance of Kol Nidre, despite some opposition, as we're going to see, uh, is rooted somewhat. The biblical uh, embryonic model of it is really that story. Yes. Certainly, certainly, and and again, I don't mean to overemphasize the. I don't mean to suggest it was, you know, porchin ba'avir the way the Mishnah says it. I'm just saying what the Mishnah says. I think, but yes, there are certainly ways in which we can. The relationship between hafarat nidarim, which is, um, what's the correct English translation for hafara? Is it annulment? But hatarak can also. Right, it's stronger than than standard annulment. It's almost like the ability to veto it uh, before it even gets off the ground to a certain extent. Um, so certainly the relationship between hafarat nidarim and hatarat nidarim is part of this, and I didn't mean to omit all those psukim about hafarat nidarim to, to sidestep it, but definitely. In order to fully uh, analyze hatarat nidarim, we'd have to look at the relationship between those two. And even in, in Chazal, one of the textual difficulties um, in some of the Midrashim that we may even see is sometimes Hatarat Nedarim is called Hafarat Nedarim. And so it seems as if th- there was a, a certain either that's a scribal issue or there is some kind of conceptual, li- there's definitely a conceptual link. The question is how, how similar are they and is Hatarat Nedarim drawn from Hafarat Nedarim in, in the way you described? Yes? Okay, so again, it, it, excellent question, and, and the laws of Nidharma themselves are vast, um, but it's more than just a passing thought, but it's also not only something which one utters and vows with a specific formula. Uh, it's somewhere in between those two, and you know, if you're familiar with, you know, some people, when, when they've done a particular practice uh, several times, say, oh, I have to take, I have to do Ataras Nidharim, before you know, I, I, I proceed. You know, I, Adam and I have a colleague in camp who hasn't been in the Morasha Lake for 26 years, and he, you know, he reminds us of that. And, and some of the times he says, you know, when I say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna take we're gonna make you go swim this year in the lake, he says I, he says I have to take Hataras Nadarim first. So it's not merely a passing thought, um, and which kind you can't necessarily take a vow to prohibit somebody else's behavior. It has to do with your own behavior and your own benefiting from other people's property and it's a huge, 
huge topic in its own right, but it is somewhere in between the fleeting thought and something which is directly formulated. Certainly if you formulate something in a particular way, it may take effect, and that's why some have the custom to append Bli Neder to anything they say. Uh, again, this, this all reflects a sensitivity that's part of our uh, Jewish DNA to utterances and, and, and actions which reflect a firm commitment to do something. Yes? So again, that's that's a no, oh that's you're, you, there are a lot of nidarim. I thought you were going to you were going to talk about the the vow to kill uh, whoever is found with the you know because one of the rabbinic interpretations of Rachel's death is connected to that. Um, yeah, they vows are seri- right. Vows are serious business in in Chumash and Tanakh, and uh, again to paint a comprehensive picture, we would look at every single one of those instances and, and see uh, what they add to the, to the picture. What I want to do now is uh, jump ahead a bit. Um, uh, section 2 discusses some of the more um, subtle inner workings of how Hatarat uh, Nidarim works. Um, and the using of petachs, openings, and charata, and regret to, to try to, to undo and annul one's vow. And there is a great deal of debate about how flexible, how accommodating we should be about annulling vows. And that in itself reflects on some of the approaches that Chazal had to Nadarim themselves, and it also reflects uh, a, a bit on the the ambivalence of the whole institution of Hatarat Nadarim, and and I want to spend a moment talking about that. What's the downside of Hatarat Nadarim in general? What's the downside of Kol Nidre? What's what was the classic polemic against uh, Hatarat Nadarim? Yeah, I, I, you know, can't trust the Jew. We have in the medieval period uh, special oaths that Jews had to take because they were aware of this. Kol Nidre caused us lots and lots of problems. Not only does the content of Kol Nidre itself have contradictory, uh, incoherent almost uh, content, but there's also the halachic problems with it, which we're going to discuss. And then there's the PR problem with it. You know, it's basically I'm standing before God right before the holiest day of the year and, you know, to borrow a metaphor, I'm, you know, I have my hands behind my back with my fingers crossed. And I'm basically saying whatever I've said or whatever I'm going to say, it shouldn't count. And so there's a great deal of ambivalence about how easy we should make it for a person to break or annul their vow. On the other hand, we know what happens when we're completely uncompromising with vows. People are going to say things. Yiftach is, is the answer to that. That's a horrible, terrible story. And so that tension between the value of taking my word seriously, my word is my bond, 
on the one hand, and on the other hand, the sense that we have to find a way for people to move beyond what they've said in a moment of uh, passion or, or, or in, inflamed emotion, that's really the struggle that is described in a number of the sources in section two. Uh, so for example, uh, in source number one there, Rabbi Leezer Omer, Potkin la'adam mechavod aviv imo v'chachamosrim. Rabbi Leezer says you can look for an opening by raising the dignity of the parents. Would you have taken this vow if you knew that your parents would be upset about you taking this vow? And Rabbi Leezer says that's a good way to go. And the Chacham say no way. Amar Rabbi Tzadok, Ache potkin lo bechavod aviv imo yiftachu lo bechavod hamakom imkenei nedarim. Rav Tzadok says, well, if you're going to introduce the dignity of the parents and what they think of you taking this vow and fulfilling this vow, well, then let's raise God's honor, and then, basically, there won't be any vows left. Which Rebbe Liezer would probably respond, great, you know, let's, let's try to annul every single vow. So we see kind of the, the, the tension and the different perspectives within Chazal in a number of sources, and uh, that's a tension which is going to express itself again in the sources specifically about Kol Nidre. There's one more source before we get to Kol Nidre itself, which we should spend some time on because it again, it becomes something that's brought into the Kol Nidre discussion later on in the, in the historical uh, evolution of Kol Nidre. Uh, the Mishnah in Nidarim talks about uh, a particular application of the laws of Neder and how you can force your friend to eat with him as a guest, etc. And the, the Gemara eventually um, describes the following scenario, that a person who wants to make sure that he doesn't have to fulfill his vows, HaRotzeh Shelo Yitkaimu Nedarav Kol HaShana Ya'amod B'Rosh HaShana V'Yomar Kol neder shani atid lidor Should get up. It probably doesn't mean specifically on Rosh Hashanah. It probably means the beginning of a time period of a year, and say any vow which I will vow in the future will be null and void. And the Gemara has a whole discussion about whether or not this is valid. Do we paskin this way, etc. But that formula of Ya'amod berosh Hashanah v'yomer kol neder shani atid lidor looms large in the history of Kol Nidre, which we'll get to right now. Yeah? Right. 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 We can, we can fill in some scenarios in our heads, I'm sure. I, you know, I'm going to exercise every day. You know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to watch that. I'm going to get a good night's sleep. I'm going to not yell at my kids. Whatever it is, insert your, your utterance and um, your preemptive, your preemptive, I don't really mean it, don't hold me to it. Okay, so let's talk about the history itself of Kol Nidre. Where do we first see it appearing? So there's like an, an, a legend and a myth that it is associated with the conversos and that era of Jewish history. It may have taken on an additional layer of pathos and significance and some scholars even think that the preamble to 
Kol Nidre, where we say, Anu matirin palel varyanim, we give leave to pray with the transgressors among us, does uh, date to that time period. Um, but the, te- the, the ceremony, the ritual of Kol Nidre, the liturgy, the text itself, exists long before. Uh, long before that, we find it in the Gaonim in the 8th and 9th centuries. The first we hear about it is in a tshuva of Rav Natrunai Gon. And um, he hears about it. We're, in, we're on page 3, Roman numeral 3, source number 1. Rav Natrunai is, is asked, Ushisha'altem yucholina tzibur lahat not berosh hashanah v'yom kipurim kol nidarim shenodrim yishanah zu l'shanah acheret. Can the community condition all of its vows in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur for the coming year? Tshuva nidarim ein nishnet b'shtei yeshivot hayom yoter mimei This is a pretty incredible statement, right? Um, the answer is, we haven't learned nidarim in over 100 years. Well, we don't know. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, uh, you know, think of an area of of Torah which is understudied and uh, overlooked and ignored and this actually may have continued uh, beyond that there, there are some Rishonim who don't have commentaries on the Durham that have commentaries on every, everything else or certainly everything else in Seder Nashim where it seems pretty clear that there were areas, you know, Moed Katan with Avelut wasn't studied, the Durham certainly Kachim and Tarot in certain settings weren't stu- studied so he basically says I don't know what you're talking about we heard there's some people in Yenims, maybe they were in Eretz Israel. it's not, the scholars are divided on whether that's a reference whether other lands is a reference to Eretz Yisrael from the Gaonim, but he says we, lo shamanu, lo reinu, we don't know anything about it. I, I wouldn't even say he's dismissive of it uh, in, in a fundamental way, he just seems to be, this. it's not on his radar screen. But the story continues. Rav Amram Gon, a few years later, discusses this. So now, rather than it being in Shararatza, we heard some people do this. Now there's Yesh Misha Osin Kach, that the Shliach Tzibur gets up and uh, says this, and it's very similar to what we have at Hayom Azeh. But here the text is, so what does he say? Um, the last line, Right? They sent from the Holy Yeshiva that this is a foolish custom and it's forbidden to do so. Okay? Rav Natrunayin, Rav Yudaygon, there's a distant rumor about this, but we don't know anything about it. Rav Amram Gon, this is a threat now a little bit. There are people who are doing this, and it's wrong. It's shtus, 
It's foolish and it's awesome. Okay? What's the... What's the... Why is... Why is... What's the... the res, why is this response so harsh? Presumably because of the problems with... How do, how do you have a mass uh, amnesty on Yom Kippur? What are we doing? Is this, is this the way we should spend Yom Kippur? We'll see its voice later on. Uh, similar similar uh, time period of Rav Amram Gon, Rav Nachshon Gon, uh, reports this and says, we don't know. I, I, again, the, 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 there isn't a, a scholar or a gon at the time who's associated with this practice. And one of the, I would argue, beautiful things about Kol Nidre is this is mamash bottom-up Judaism at its finest. You know, this is not where the, the Gaonim and the Rishonim say this is a practice we should do and they're spending a hundred years trying to convince the people to do. It's the opposite. The, they're so resistant for hundreds of years, the Gaonim and then later on the Rishonim are trying to get people to stop doing it and Kol Nidre just endures. So there isn't any scholar who's associated with this Communities in Eretz Yisrael and other places outside of Bavel is where it appears first, but it, it's in Bavel by the time we get to Rav Amram Gon. Okay, Rabbeinu Haigon, number four. Rabbeinu Haigon responded to those who conditioned all their vows for the coming year. God forbid that we should do so. Chas v'shalom she'ein lanu We never heard of our masters doing this and, and neither should you. Is it so meaningless to you, of such, such little consequence to you, to violate vows and oaths and to do this dafka before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Ben is not a fan. The last piece of the Gaonic chain is a report that's found in a later Italian work called the Shiboli Haleket, where he quotes Rav Haigon as well. And here we see a little bit of a, an attempt to emend Kol Nidre. So once, once they lose the, the fight to get rid of it, then they try their best to make it work with some emendations. The report is Rav Haigon, who certainly wasn't a fan of Kol Nidre, but it may have had a, a text that he preferred. Any of the vows which we have taken, which we have transgressed, whether we did it on purpose or by accident, Nidarna, lo neder le mechayev alaihu isarna, lo asare le michtabahon, ushvatana lo shvua le milki bedilhon, kakatu vinislach begomer. 
So what is Rav Hai in this text trying to do? What is his version of Kol Nidre? It's a vidui. It's, it's an alchet. It's, it's a form of we messed up and be mochalas. Please find a way, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to make the vows that we've transgressed not come back to haunt us. Again, shifting it very much away from what we think of Kol Nidre as kind of an amnesty clause or a, uh, a preemptive uh, clause to 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 keep the vows from from being fulfilled or being uh, affected. Here, Rav Haigon tries, and it doesn't doesn't take root. Tries to make this into a, uh, a a prayer, which is more in line with Yom Kippur, which is we're sorry, we screwed up, we've sinned, we broke vows. Please forgive us. Don't 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 mete out punishment for that doesn't work. What does work, and which brings us to our text, is Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam, uh, probably his father already started in the Rashbam. There, there are many, many uh, figures in, in Ashkenaz who are working on this. And um, I, I have it in the other room. Uh, Professor Richie Steiner has a, a 45-page article in the uh, Jew, Jewish Studies Internet Journal, Kol Nidre, Past, Present, and Future, where he goes through in great detail each of the uh, emendations, and he has some speculation. He's got the grammar covered, which I cannot do. The singular, the plural, the past perfect, all of that stuff. You can see that because he believes that Rashi and the Balitosot were so in tuned to biblical and Aramaic grammar that they were able to somehow it didn't survive all these changes but the, the, they were able they didn't just do a line item veto the way we have it it sounds like he just took out Miyom Kippurim Sha'avar and put in Miyom Kippurim Zeh Ad Yom Kippurim Hava uh, but Professor Steiner points out that there are there exists a number of other subtle changes which make the rest of it not as incoherent. For our sake, we're going to stick with the incoherence, and that, that is the focus of Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam is uh, mochek, the line, mashakatub machzorim bekol nidre miyom kippurim shavar ad yom kippurim habalein lutova, and says, anybody who thinks that you can annul your past vows it's crazy. Halachically, that doesn't work. The only thing that could work, based on that Gemara Nadarim, which we read earlier, is conditioning your vows going forward. The past is the past. You can't annul it. We don't want to annul it. Our word is our bond. What we can try to do is preemptively condition the vows going forward. The rush responds to Rabbeinu Tam and points out that textually and halachically, there is justification. I'm going to leave for you to read the Russian side. He responds and points out that Minag hakadmonim velashon kol nidre mochiach shenitkan al hanidarim sheavru haleim ashana sheavra umatirin otam kidei lahatzil mina onish. And that's why we have all the trappings associated with kol nidre. And that brings us to the final couple of pieces. First, 
Kol Nidre as a holistic experience we should be mindful of and the, the Shulchan Aruch Harav um, explicates this most clearly the first Lubavitcher Rebbe the idea of Kol Nidre is it's not really a prayer right, we talk about the Kol Nidre prayer the prayer that starts on Kippur it's not really a prayer Rav Haigon's version may have been a prayer Rabbeinu Tam's version is a legal formula of a it's a little closer to a prayer what our Kol Nidre really is is a court proceeding and if you think about it the the um, trappings that we attach to it and the ceremonial aspects of it is to evoke the courtroom. The Shulchan Aruch Harav says, No again lahatil kol nedre mi yom. That's why you got to start while it's still daytime because you can't have a court proceeding at night. Court proceedings don't take place in Jewish law at night. That's why you should start while there's still some light. Dein matirin, not just at night, dein matirin nidarin b'shabbat v'yom tov. That's why we have at least two people standing on each side of the Shliach Tzibor as Kol Nidre is recited. They form the court. That's the court. Those three people are the court. Now, usually you need a court separate from the person who recites Kol Nidre. So the, the trappings of Beitin don't fully work either. But it does seem to suggest that what we have here, and again, the Shulchan Aruch Harav hedges and says, well, it's really about the future, but it still also evokes the courtroom proceedings. So at, at its core, Kol Nidre then constitutes a truly heroic story about a piece of our liturgy. It survived for hundreds of years, all kinds of opposition, and now it's such a, it's not just the standard part of the liturgy, it's, it's what people associate their Judaism with, certainly what they associate Yom Kippur with. And I think that that um, piece of it uh, is what's most significant for us. And I'd like to speculate in the final few minutes on some of the Midrashic origins and make a a couple of suggestions about uh, what Kol Nidre is about and how it's significant in terms of Chuba. I think it's, uh, again, uh, Ethan Tucker, who's uh, off in Israel for this year, but whom I've discussed this sugya with quite a bit, and he's given talks on it. It's also a congregant. It's like a crazy shul I have. Richard Joel, Ashlo Patton, Ethan Tucker. It's, it's like, makes my head explode sometimes. Um, uh, but he notes that the past-future piece really has um, kind of the best of both worlds that rather than being just incoherent and contradictory, that there's a reason why um, Rabbeinu Tam's line item endured, even as the rest of the text remained focused on the past. And in his view, um, 
you can listen to the Shir in full. According to, to his perspective, we need to have the past annulled. Part of the power of Kol Nidre and that feeling entering Yom Kippur unburdened and cleansed and, and with a clean slate, that's, I, I, one would think that that's really where Kol Nidre emerged from, from the people wanting to have a sense of being completely cleansed and having the past and the past and not having that weigh us down. Even as we're going to enumerate all the chataim that we've done, if we can, if we can somehow use the hatarat nidarim formula to at least take the vows off our back, that's incredibly uh, liberating in terms of an attempt to try to, to shift and change and focus, reinvent ourselves uh, for the future. So this hybrid hybrid text of Kol Nidre endured because the, the, the incoherence was in fact compelling. Um, the, the future, Rabbi Tam's emendation sticks because giving us a prayer that sets the tone for Yom Kippur in the year that follows without focusing on our past shortcomings also has a certain quality that is compelling. We want to get rid of our past even as we want to look forward and try our best to say, okay, the next year is going to be different and if I slip up at some point in the next year, this is the moment right now of who I really am and this is my conditioning of the future as well. So I think if we, if we study it deeply and, and value Minhag Yisrael as it, as it has evolved in that kind of way, Kol Nidre emerges as... Uh, a text which is about both the past and is also cathartic in the sense that it looks forward to a, with a clean slate and even projects a certain image of ourselves um, as a prelude uh, to what we can be going forward in the future. But I think that capacity has two, uh, two origins. One, as we mentioned, is the is the biblical text of, of Shaul and the Am being Podeh, being Podeh Sha, uh, Yonatan and redeeming and rescuing him. In a certain sense, that story serves as the biblical paradigm for what happened with Kol Nidre. The Kol Nidre was redeemed and rescued and saved over and over again by the people against all of the onslaughts which said, you've got to stick with what you said. You know what? The people were able to save Yonatan and the people were able to save themselves with Kol Nidre. But I think there's one other dimension uh, to this beyond just the, the past and the future and the biblical paradigm of Shaul. And that is a Midrash, which I think is uh, quite powerful. That's the final source on page 5. Vayichal Moshe. What does that mean? So there are many different interpretations. This is in the aftermath of the golden calf when we have some of those radical expressions of, of what the human uh, divine partnership can be. Right? David Hartman can't get through five pages of, of any of his works without talking about Avram arguing about Stone and Moshe arguing with God at Chet Egel. That's Moshe's finest hour. And it is really 
uh, incredible. Dove Weiss recently uh, did his dissertation on kind of the most radical rabbinic um, midrashim about uh, Moshe and others arguing with God. So what is this midrash? See, this midrash doesn't see it as Moshe praying in the classic sense. Vayichal Moshe mahu kein what is Vayechal Moshe? It's playing off of Lo Yachel Devaro. Right? You cannot get out of what you say. Vayechal Moshe. So what in Moshe, what was his argument? Bishasha Asu Yisrael Ha'egel Aman Moshe Mephayes Ha'elokim Shim Cholahem Moshe sought to find a way to persuade God to be mochel them. Amar ha'elokim, Moshe, kvar nishbati, my hands are tied. Zoveach l'elohim yacharam v'davar shvua sh'yatsim yipi, eni machziro. I can't go back on something I said. God says to Moshe, Amar Moshe ribon ha'olam v'lo natati li hatarash al nidarim. We got a way out of this, God. Right? You gave it to me. You gave me, and again, this is, I think, the rabbis stating what was given to them. Moshe is their proxy of Torah Shabbat Peh. V'amarta ish ki yudor neder lahashem o yishavah shuel lesor yisar nafsho lo yachel dvaro hu eno mochel aval chacham mochel et nidro be'et shishalalaf. We have a way out of this. A chacham can be mochel somebody else's neder. V'chol zaken shemore hora and any elder sage who rules im yirtsashi kabu akhirim horatot sarhul kaimat khila va tatsivitani al hatarat nidarim dinhu shatatir nidrakha kashir tsivitani latir lakhirim you gave us you gave us hatarat nidarim Moshe says we got a this is the first instance of hatarat nidarim in the midrashic imagination Moshe's absolving annulling of God's vow to destroy B'nai Yisrael. Miyad nitatef b'talito v'yashav lo kizaken v'akadosh baruch hu omed kishoel nidro. A lot of anthropomorphic things going on here. God stands, Moshe sits, where's the talus? And the, the hatarat nidarim, the first hatarat nidarim in history takes place. Yom Kippur is the day on which we achieve atonement because historically that is the day in which B'nai Yisrael after Chet Egel, finally were able to uh, establish the covenantal relationship with God. The key to that, the key to getting to Yom Kippur, entering Yom Kippur and accessing the atonement of the day, the Itzumo Shalyom, that key runs right through Hatarat Nidarim. The only way to do that, the only way Moshe was able to get us to Yom Kippur was through the first act of Hatarat Nidarim. An act which contradicted God, which went against God's own words. And now, with that Midrashic idea in our heads, Kol Nidre doesn't seem so bad. Kol Nidre seems like, again, the manifestation, the expression not just of the Am's redeeming of Yonatan, but also Moshe's allowing God to go back on his word, as it were, and allow the Jewish people to be forgiven and to restore the relationship with him. 
in a certain sense, Kol Nidre then is also a microcosm of the entire tshuva process. If you look, and this is maybe another lecture, if you look, tshuva itself is in embryonic form in Chumash and Tanakh. We certainly have expressions of tshuva at the end of Sefer Dvarim, the Book of Yonah and other places, but it's not a fully developed idea uh, the idea of repentance. There's a book coming out based on a PhD by David Lambert, which uh, from, originally from Harvard, now at the University of North Carolina, who talks a great deal about this, and that takes us back to the, to the, first, to the source on the, the cover of the page, uh, on the cover of the sheet. And with this, we'll conclude. Because in a certain sense, Hatarat Nidarim and Kol Nidre is the, the gateway for all of tshuva, in the midrash, it's a Yerushalmi and Makot, different characteristics, but also different works uh, in Tanakh are asked. What do we do with the chotet? A verse from Mishlei says, "Wicked people should be pursued by their sins." They ask prophecy. The verse in Yecheskel says the sinning soul should die. Sha'ul Torah, this is only in certain versions of the Midrash, Chote Mahu Ansho, he says, maybe you can bring a korban, but Sha'ul LaKadosh Baruch Hu HaChote Mahu Ansho, Amr Lahem Yaseh Tshuva V'Yitzchaper Lo. God is the one who conceives of the idea of Tshuva. It's not really there in Tanakh, this Midrash seems to be saying, and in a certain sense, like Kol Nidre, Hatarat Nedarim Bigadol, Kol Nidre specifically Bifrat, Tshuva is the analog which it seems to be defying of logic, seems to be a, a, an impossible thing to justify rationally, but Kol Nidre leads the way into a day of Tshuva where we say the power of the people and the power of Hatarat Nedarim allows us to begin the process of repentance. It's the perfect tone setter for Yom Kippur. I want to wish everyone a Shana Tova, a Ktiva V'chatima Tova, and thank you again. Thanks, Siri, again for inviting me. Any, if there are any questions, I'll take a couple, and then if anybody wants to ask in addition, I'll, I'll stick around. In the back, all the way in the back. Yes. You. Yeah. Yeah. depends on when it, when it originated, but if it originates when Aramaic is the, the spoken language, even our Hatarat Nidarim before, uh, before Rosh Hashanah, the usual text of Hatarat Nidarim is in that, in that Aramaic. So uh, again, I'm not sure if that necessarily indicates that, that it, it's the people, but it, perhaps.
wouldn't it be more appropriate for uh, reciting it before Rosh Hashanah? Certainly. And that may have been where the practice of Hatar Nidharm and Erev Rosh Hashanah and Kol Nidre on Yom Kippur is a whole other discussion of kind of when those two practices emerged and what their interrelationship is as well. I think there's certainly something there. I'll take one more question, then if anybody has questions afterwards, I don't want to detain yeah. everybody yet. I'm going to ask a little technical, but just uh, Shibuos versus Nadarim. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there, there, the, there's a book that I referenced in the secondary sources by Moshe Benevitz, which is the book on Nidarim itself, um, where he goes through all those distinctions, kinuyim, kinume, what each one of those terms means, and they are distinct. Um, Shavuot and Nidharim are kind of the most well-known. The Gemara has a, a distinction that Nidharim are on the, the object. You, you forbid the object itself. This is like the briskers, uh, you know, ground zero. It's on the object itself, whereas Shavuot referred to the, the Gavra, the individual's prohibition. That's only one distinction benefit. Yes, yeah, and that's Kol Nidre is basically saying everything. Nidarim, Shvuos, uh, Konamot, any one of those um, can be annulled. Okay, thank you again, everybody.